Welcome to the Bethel Free Baptist Church Weekly Sermons. The following podcast is from the Sword of the Spirit Bible Conference. This is the first morning service of Saturday the 21st of February 2015, entitled Fear of Man. And the Bible reading is taken from Judges chapter 13, verses 1 to 5. Here's Brother Dave Kissler. That uh, Brian surrendered to go into evangelistic ministry, he and I became dear friends from that point on. We have done a lot of things together in Washington, D.C., and other places, and so Brian is a real dear friend, and I was thrilled when when in 2002 I was able to uh, recommend uh, him here to uh, Brother Larry, and then he started coming over here, and this conference got started, and I've heard so many things about it, and so it's a delight and honor for me to be able to be here and sort of fill in for Brother Brian in his absence. The other thing I want to say is this. Uh, several of you have asked about my son, Nathan. I am now known as Nathan's dad. My name is not Dave Kistler. I am Nathan's dad. That's the way I'm now known. And that's okay. I don't mind that at all. But uh, Nathan sure wishes he could be here, but he's traveling all over the United States with a group called the Hoppers. Any of you ever heard of the Hoppers? Ever heard them sing before? They're very, very well known in the States. But anyway, he's traveling singing with them, and that's what kept him from being able to be here this week. But he sure would have loved to have come along. And our youngest daughter, Hannah, who is 22 years of age, she wanted to come as well, but she just graduated in December from Regent University. She had got her degree in drama, and uh, she has an audition coming up next week up in New York. She's going into New York City, and she's going to be doing an audition there, and so that uh, prohibited her from being here, but uh, she would have loved to be here. But uh, I want you to know I am thrilled and honored to be able to be here. Brother Larry, thank you for the kind words you said. Yes, we go way, way back. My wife asked me when I called her this morning, she said, have you guys been reminiscing? And I said, well, we haven't had enough time really to reminisce much. But anyway, we do go a long ways back, and I appreciate Brother Curtis so very, very much and his entire family. Judges chapter number 13, if you have your Bible, and I hope you do have your Bible, and I hope you have something you can take a few notes uh, on a piece of paper, or maybe you do like I do, and it's right in the margin of your Bible. There's nothing wrong with that. Years ago, a guy told me this. He said, if you mark your Bible, you'll be marked by your Bible. I believe that to be the case. And so I write notes all over the, 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 the sides of the pages of my Bible and make notes, define terms, you know, just jot things down. Sometimes I do it on sheets of paper as well. And so I want to encourage you to do that during these couple of days that we're going to enjoy together. Let me just tell you a little bit uh, about me. I was a youth director for two years, my first two years out of college in Tampa, Florida. Had 125 teenagers in our youth department. I want you to know I love young people. I love teenagers. I'm a teenager trapped in a 55-year-old body right now. That's all I am. I love young people. love being around young people. There's something very energetic about teenagers, and it keeps me moving. Uh, but we had a young man in our church whose name was John, and uh, John came up to me and he handed me a little note that I want to read to you. I want you to listen to it. Very, very interesting. It says this. He said, um, I was up for an award and I was scared to death that I would actually win it. The auditorium was bulging with over 2,000 high school juniors and seniors, and from the back where I like to sit, it seemed a good mile or two up to the front. All I could think of was, what will my classmates think of me while I walk to the front? Will I walk funny? Will I trip going up the stairs? Will one person, and I prayed it wouldn't be that girl I like, think that I was a jerk? What about all the others who were nominated for the award? What if I won instead of them? What would they all think of me? And if I did win, what would I ever say as far as a brief acceptance speech? So I began to pray, God, please don't let me win that award. After a number of lesser awards were announced, the vice principal went to the podium to introduce the winner. He began with a short, somewhat cryptic biographical sketch. 
It didn't really sound like me, but it was generic enough to fit. And so I started to sweat, but I sat motionless for fear someone would think I was actually getting interested. Finally, the announcement came. And the winner of this year's senior award is Rick Wilson. Rick Wilson. I couldn't believe it. No one even thought he was a candidate for the award. Well, you can imagine my reaction now. Relief, right? No way. No, now I felt like a total failure. Everyone in that room knew I was nominated for that award and now someone else was chosen. What a loser I was. Immediately my mind began spinning out justifications. If I'd worked it all this year, I could have won that award. I just didn't want to win. I'm what they call one of those late bloomers, but when I get to college, I'll show every one of them. Fact was, I was ashamed to go back to class. Pitiful, isn't it? Later that day, the events of that early morning chapel replayed themselves in my mind. I live like a frightened kid because I'm so controlled by what other people think of me or by what other people might possibly think of me. Now when John handed me that and I read it the first time, can I tell you this? My mind raced back to my high school experience. Uh, I went to a, a school that um, in the States have things called a prom. You know what a prom is? Junior, senior prom. Well, we didn't have a prom. We had a junior, senior banquet. Fancy dress-up thing. And our uh, principal had encouraged us fellows to, you know, to get a nice tux and ask a young lady out to the, to the junior, senior banquet. And so I asked this young lady out. She accepted. My, I have a twin brother and he asked a girl out. She accepted. We kind of double dated to that thing. And it's, we're going to this junior, senior banquet. Fancy dress-up occasion. Brother Curtis, the whole way there, not out loud, but silently I was praying this. Literally, guys, I was. Lord, please don't let them serve fried chicken tonight at the banquet. Now, how many of you like fried chicken as much as I do? I love fried chicken. By the way, a guy told me one time, a belt on a preacher is nothing more than a leather fence around a chicken graveyard. And there's a lot of truth to that. I love fried chicken. I loved it then. I love it now. But see, here's the problem with fried chicken if you're dressed in nice clothes. If fried chicken is done right, it is saturated in grease. And you're nodding your head. And I thought, you know, if the chicken is done right tonight, it's got grease all over it. I I've got a dilemma. See, I've got to make a choice. Do I take my knife and fork and, you know, very dignified? Do I cut my chicken with my knife and fork? Or do I just dive in with my fingers, you know, and eat it that way? But either way, if chicken is done right, it's got so much grease on it, you run the risk of getting grease all over your clothes. And I didn't want to do that and embarrass myself in front of my date. So I'm praying, oh God, please don't let him serve fried chicken. I hate meatloaf, to be honest with you. But I said, Lord, I'll take meatloaf tonight. Just anything but fried chicken. Anybody want to venture a wild guess what they served that night at the banquet? juiciest, greasiest fried chicken you would ever want to eat. Do you know none of us, none of the young people touched the fried chicken? They could have collected all of it, put it in a basket, served it somewhere else the next night because everybody in there was thinking the same thing I was thinking. What if I dribble chicken grease on my nice suit? Girls were thinking, what if I get chicken grease on my dress? And I paid good money for me and my date to go to that banquet and didn't enjoy any of it. You say, what was the problem? Through my mind, I'm thinking this. What if I get something on myself? What's everybody going to think about me? You know there's a verse in the Bible that talks about this. Proverbs 29, 25. Don't turn, just listen. It says this, The fear of man bringeth a snare. 
Literally, that phrase in Hebrew means this. The fear of man ties your hands into a noose. Now guys, listen to me. I love you enough to tell you the truth. I've lived there and did it for far too long before the Lord gave me some real victory over it. If you want to be powerless and accomplish nothing for yourself, if you certainly want to accomplish nothing for God in your life, live your life controlled by what everybody else thinks about you. Now there's a man in the Bible who lived his life that way. I want you to look at Judges 13, verse number 1. Now we're going to go on a very rapid but very fascinating journey. I want you to stay on for the whole ride, alright? Just a few minutes. Look at uh, Judges 13, verse number 1, where the Bible says this, And the children of Israel did evil again in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord delivered them into the hand of the Philistines forty years. And there was a certain man of Zorah, of the family of the Danites, whose name was Manoah, and his wife was barren and bare not. In other words, she couldn't have children. Watch verse 3. And the angel of the Lord appeared unto the woman and said unto her, Behold, now thou art barren and bearest not, but thou shalt conceive and bear a son. Now therefore beware, I pray thee, and drink not wine or strong drink, nor eat any unclean thing, for the child, watch this, Drink not any strong drink or eat any unclean thing, for lo, thou shalt conceive and bear a son. Now we ultimately know the son that this woman gives birth to. His name is Samson. But look what the rest of the Bible says in verse number 5 about this young man. No razor shall come upon his head, for the child, the child you're going to give birth to, Samson, shall be a Nazarite unto God from the womb, and he shall, and this is a very important word, he shall begin to deliver Israel out of the hand of the Philistines. Now guys, look up at me. Can I tell you, God had more in mind for Samson than just beginning to deliver Israel out of the hand of the Philistines. Do you know God would have used Samson not just to begin to deliver Israel, God would have used Samson to totally deliver Israel out of the hand of the Philistines. But see, God knows the end from the beginning. And God, at the very beginning, knew Samson would have a serious character flaw. By the way, a flaw I had for a long time. A flaw, by the way, I'm not trying to be unkind, but a flaw some of you in this room have. Samson had the same flaw. He lived his life controlled, manipulated, overpowered by what everybody else thought about him. You say, Brother Kissler, how do you know he did that? Once you look at chapter 14 of the book of Judges, in fact, you can kind of organize Samson's life around three women in his life. By the way, none of these women happen to be his mother. There are three other women in his life. And ladies, can I say this? I don't have anything against women. Uh, I, I want you to know my mom was a woman. My, my wife's a woman. Okay, so I don't have anything against the women. But my point is this. The right kind of woman can be a man's greatest blessing. Do you know the wrong kind of woman can be a man's greatest curse? And Samson had this propensity for choosing the wrong kind of women. Look at chapter 14, verse number 1. Now stay with me. I want you to see this. Verse 1 says... And Samson went down to Timnath, and here it comes, watch the phrase, and saw a woman in Timnath of the daughters of the Philistines. And he came up and told his father and mother and said, I've seen a woman in Timnath of the daughters of the Philistines. Now therefore get her for me. And if you have a King James Version, which is what I'm reading from, it says, get her for me to wife. Literally it means get her for me as my wife. Mom and dad, I've, I've seen a woman in Timnath and I want you to get her for me as my wife. Now does mom and dad have a problem with that request? Look at verse 3. Then his father and mother said unto him, Is there never a woman among the daughters of thy brethren? or among all my people, that thou goest to take a wife of the uncircumcised Philistines. And Samson said unto his father, Get her for me, 
for she pleaseth me well. Literally, what that phrase means is this. She pleases me well. Literally, Daddy, get her for me because she looks good. She looks good to my eyes. Now what Samson is doing is this. He's making a terrible choice. He's making a decision on what he thinks is going to be a life mate based merely on what she looks like to his eyes. Now, guys, hear me. This is not the message, but I want to say this. Do you know what is least important about a mate that you will ultimately choose? The least important thing is what they look like. Now, I'm not saying it's not important. I'm just saying it's not the most important. Samson is making a decision based on what this woman looks like. And I, I take it from what he said. She must have been a knockout. I mean, she must have been beautiful. As we say in, in North Carolina, she was a fox. I mean, she was awesome. I mean, beautiful young lady. Get her for me, Daddy. She looks good to me. Now, let me say something to you. If success in a relationship is determined by what a person looks like, I mean, in other words, if you're going to be a success in your relationships and, and th that success is determined based on what a person looks like, do you know where the highest rate of success in relationships ought to be in my country? It ought to be where the beautiful people live. Anybody know where the beautiful people live in the United States of America? Where do they live? What state? Anybody know? California. What city in California? Hollywood, California. Have you ever been there? Okay, well, we were there. Yeah, you haven't, well, no, you haven't missed much. But anyway, we were there two years ago. Went to Beverly Hills, guys. I'm telling you, this is the haven for beautiful people. Do you know what the rate of success in marriage is in Hollywood? In our country right now, one out of every two marriages ends in divorce. In Hollywood, it's almost 80% end in divorce. Where the beautiful people live. My point is this. Success in relationships should not be based on what the person looks like. Samson says, Daddy, she's a knockout. Get her for me. She looks good to my eyes. I wish Samson's parents had held their ground here and said, no, they don't. They give in to their son. They make a trip down to meet this Philistine woman and set up a wedding. On their way down, guys, if you know the story, an interesting thing happens. A lion comes out of the brush and roars out against Samson. Chapter 14 describes that. I'm not going to read it. You know what Samson does to that lion? He takes his bare hands and he tears the lion in half tosses its carcass off the side of the road, dusts his hands off, and keeps right on going. They get down to the Philistines' country. They set up a wedding. They turn around and come back home for a number of weeks. As best I can st tell from studying this through, they're home about eight weeks before they return for the actual wedding. So they come back home for about eight weeks. And then eight weeks later, they go down for this wedding. As they're making their way down to the Philistines' country the second time for the actual wedding ceremony, they pass the spot in the road where weeks earlier, Samson has killed that lion. And the Bible says Samson and says this, I will turn aside and see the carcass of the lion that I killed a couple of weeks ago. So he leaves the roadway, leaves his mom and dad standing there, finds the lion's carcass, and guys in the weeks that have passed, evidently somehow in the rib cage of the lion's carcass, some bees have gotten in the decaying carcass. They've built a beehive and there's actually honey dripping. 
Samson sticks his hand inside the decaying carcass of the lion, takes some honey out, puts it to his mouth. Wow, that's good. Gets a little bit more, brings it out to his mom and dad who are standing in the roadway, gives them some of the honey, but he doesn't tell them where he got it. Why doesn't he tell them that, Brother Kinsler? In chapter 13 of Judges, the Bible says Samson was to be a Nazarite unto God. Do you know a Nazarite committed to do three things in his life? Number one, never to touch a dead carcass, human or animal. Samson has stuck his hand inside the decaying carcass of a lion. He has violated his Nazarite commitment. Now there are two more parts to that Nazarite commitment that I'll mention in just a moment. He doesn't tell his parents where he got the honey because he doesn't want them to know he's broken this commitment. They make their way from there all the way down to the Philistines' country. They, they, they're going to have this wedding, but no sooner do they get there, Samson does an interesting thing. I want you to watch if you would. Look at verse number 11 of Judges 14. And it came to pass when they, the Philistines, saw him, Samson, that they brought 30 companions to be with him. And Samson said unto them, these 30 Philistine companions, I will now put forth a riddle unto you. In other words, I'm going to tell you a joke. If you can declare it me, if you can figure out the punchline to my joke within the seven days of the feast and find it out, then I will give you 30 sheets. And the word sheets means 30 linen garments and 30 change of garments. But if you cannot declare it me, if you can't figure out the punchline to my joke, then shall you give me 30 sheets, 30 linen garments and 30 change of garments. And they said unto him, put forth thy riddle that we may hear it. Now, ask you a question. Samson meets these 30 Philistines. No sooner does he meet them than he says, I'm going to tell you a riddle. If you figure out the punchline, I owe you. If you don't figure out the punchline, then you owe me. Why does he do that? Do you know what he's doing? By the way, people that are controlled by what others think about him always do this. He's trying to one-up the Philistines. He's trying to show his superiority. I know something you guys will never figure out. The only problem is they do figure it out. They go to his fiance and they say, your mission is to get from your fiance the answer to this riddle. Well, she goes to him, he tells her, she runs to her people, and she says, here's the answer. I'll not go into what the riddle was and what the answer was. But the seven days come and go when they walk up to Samson and they say, here's the answer to your riddle. Boy, is he embarrassed. You know what he does as soon as they tell him what the answer to the riddle is? He leaves his own wedding and goes home and leaves his fiancée down there. Her dad wonders where Samson went. He doesn't come back. So the girl's dad gives her to Samson's best man. Now, let me ask you a question. Why did he leave and go home? He's been embarrassed. Do you know people that are controlled by what others think about him? When they're embarrassed publicly, they always run the other direction. That's Samson. Well, it didn't work with this first woman, so he tries a relationship with a second woman. Look at chapter 16 of Judges. Now, stay with me. I want you to see this. Look at verse 1 of chapter 16. Then went Samson to Gaza and saw there and would you say the next word out loud if you have a Bible he saw there a what? harlot now would you look up at me for just a minute Philistine woman first that didn't work he tries a second relationship this time it's not just a Philistine it's a harlot 
That's a big step down, isn't it? By the way, every time you disregard God's Word, wise parents, Samson had that really did care about him. Every time you do that, the choices you make always are down. Now watch again verse number 1. Then went Samson to Gaza, chapter 16, verse 1, and saw there an harlot, and went in unto her. And it was told the Gazites, saying, Samson is come hither. Hey, the strong dude is in town. And they compassed him in. That is, the people of Gaza circled the house of the harlot where Samson was. They compassed him in and laid wait for him all night in the gate of the city and were quiet all the night, saying, In the morning when it's day, we're going to kill him. Well, Samson doesn't wait till the morning. Look at verse 3. And Samson lay till midnight, and he arose at midnight, took the doors of the gate of the city and the two posts, went away with them, bar and all, put them upon his shoulders, carried him up to the top of the hill that is before Hebron. You know what Samson does? They're waiting for him to come out the next morning. He doesn't wait till the next morning. At the stroke of midnight, he exits the harlot's house, goes out to the city walls, grabs the gates with his bare hands, guys, jerks the gate off the city wall, folds them together, puts them on his shoulders, treks up to the top of this hill called Hebron, and he must have done this. The Bible doesn't say he did this, but he must have opened the gates up, driven them down in the ground in an impressive fashion. I mean, an awesome display of strength. Let me ask you a question. Why did he do that? Did you know Samson's life is full of stuff like this? Awesome, showy displays. For example, look back at chapter 14, verse 6. The Bible says, And the Spirit of the Lord came upon him, came mightily upon him. And he, Samson, rent, tore him, the lion, as he would have rent or torn a kid, literally a kid goat, and he had nothing in his hand. What, what is your name? Alex, how are you, Alex? 25. Now let me ask you a question, Alex. You're going to be my illustration, okay? Alex, do you have an automobile? Do you have a car you drive? No, okay. If you could have any kind of car you wanted, what, what kind of car would you choose? A what? A, a, a Cooper Mini? Okay, all right. We're going to give you. We're going to give you a Mini. Okay, so you've now got a Mini. Okay, Alex, you've got a Mini. Now, here's the sixty-four thousand dollars question. Alex, do you have a girlfriend? You have a fiance. Is she in the room? Okay. What's her name? I Isabel. Okay. We're, we're going to say, for the sake of my story here, that Isabel is not your fiance. Okay. We're going to give you a fiance, and we're going to name her Erpel. Okay. Erpel. All right. All right. You got it. Okay. Now. Um, let, let us say, Alex, you get in your meeting, you got Erpel in the passenger seat, and uh, you drive down to one of the, the, the shopping centers in, in the bull ring. Down in the bull ring, you park your car, and as you're parking your mini, uh, across the parking lot coming towards you is this massive Rottweiler dog. All right? And he's got slobber coming out both sides of his mouth, and he's galloping towards your little Cooper mini. And Erpel, your girlfriend, says, Alex, don't get out of the car, that dog will eat you alive. And you look over at Erpel and you say, Have no fear. Alex, baby is here. And Alex, you get out of the car, you close the door, she locks the doors behind you, and you walk toward that Rottweiler dog who's coming towards you, and about 10 feet from you, he dives at you, and you catch him. You catch him with your bare hands, and you put one hand on his lower jaw, other hand on his upper jaw, and with your bare hands, Alex, you tear that Rottweiler dog in half, toss him off to the side, dust your hands like that, look into the car at your girlfriend, Erpel, your fiancé, and you say, that's what I do with my easy work. Now, Alex, be honest with me. Have you ever done anything like that? 
Probably. You are the man if you have. Now, fact is you haven't, have you? But it'd be awesome if you did, wouldn't it? Hey guys, Samson tears a lion in half with his bare hands. That's impressive stuff. Look at chapter 14, verse 19. I want you to see this. And the Spirit of the Lord came upon him, and he went down to Ashkelon and slew 30 men of them. One guy kills 30 Philistines. Hey, Alex, you're, you're, in, your, you're in your Cooper Mini. You pull into the Bullring parking lot. You got a purple over in your... Over here, I guess it actually be uh, in, in the passenger seat. And as you're pulling into the to the Bullring parking lot, behind you, behind you, following you into the parking lot, you didn't notice it at first, but following you into the parking lot are 30 guys on motorcycles. Then they got leather on, they got chains hanging off the motorcycles, and they circle your little Cooper Mini and your girlfriend, your fiance, Erpo says, Alex, don't get out, man. If you do, they'll kill you. And you look over at Erpo, your fiance, and you say, Have no fear. Because Alex's baby is here. And you tell Erpo, look, I know jujitsu and I know taekwondo and I know shotokan and a bunch of other Japanese words. Man, I know all of them. And you get out of your car. You close the door. She locks doors behind you. And these 30 motorcycle riders with the leather and the chains, they circle and they start taunting you. And you look at them and you say, guys, I'm going to give you one warning. My body is registered as a lethal weapon in the country of England. And of course they laugh, and as they approach you, here's what you do, Alex, okay? Here's what you do. You do this. Yeah! And Erpel, your fiancé, watches you literally by yourself with your bare hands lay 30 motorcycle riders out on the pavement. Now, be honest. You ever done anything like that? No, but if he did, it'd be awesome, wouldn't it? Yeah. Hey guys, look, the point is this. Samson defeats 30 Philistines. I mean, this is impressive. Look at chapter 15, verse 14. I want you to see this with your own eyes. And when he came to Lehi, the Philistines shouted against him, and the Spirit of the Lord came mightily upon him, and the cords that were upon his arms became as flax that was burnt with fire, and his bands loosed from off his hands. Now watch verse 15. And he found a new jawbone of an ass, of a donkey, and put forth his hand, and took it, and slew how many people? How many? A thousand. Wow. Hey, Alex, you're in your Cooper Mini? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Man, you're awesome, man. I appreciate you. I really do. Be my friend after this, okay? And, and you got you got Erpel, your fiance, you know, over in the passenger seat, and you're pulling into the Bullring parking lot, and, and you you don't you don't notice this, but as you're parking your car out of the out of the shopping center comes a thousand people, and they see that nice Cooper Mini you've got, and they say, man, you know, a young man that young shouldn't have that nice a car, so they come down towards your car and they're taunting you and they're yelling at you, and and, and you look around in your car and all you can find is a socket wrench. And you grab that socket wrench and you wade into a thousand people and just by yourself, you lay a thousand of them out. Now let me ask you a question. Ever done anything like that? No. But it'd be awesome if he did, wouldn't it? Samson, with a jawbone of a donkey, 
kills a thousand Philistines. Now I want you to look at chapter 16, verse 3. Here's my point. I want you to watch. There is a phrase that is missing here. It is used every other time Samson performs an incredible feat of strength, but it's not used here. Look at verse 3. And Samson lay till midnight, and he arose at midnight, took the doors of the gate of the city, two posts, went away with them, bar and all, put them upon his shoulders, carried him up to the top of the hill that's before Hebron. Help me out. What's the phrase that is missing? The Spirit of the Lord came upon him, or the Spirit of the Lord came mightily? You say, Brother Kistler, big deal. It's not mentioned. It's a huge deal. Can I tell you why that phrase is not used here? Because God's not leading them at this point. See, He performs this incredible feat of strength on His own because He's just come out of a house where He's been immoral with a harlot. Now, fellas, I want to say this. I appreciate all these guys in the room. Girls, I'm so thankful for you. But I want to say this to the men in the room. I'm one of you. If we want to lose our power with God, a surefire way to do that is play around with internet pornography. If we want to lose our power with God, surefire way to do that is to get involved in our relationship with our girlfriend, doing things that we know are not right. That will take God's power from you. You know what Samson is doing? God's not leading him at this point. He takes the walls off the, the gates off the city wall. He performs this feat of strength on his own. The question I have is, why does he do it? Do you know why he does it? He's showing off. Brother Curtis, I don't know if you ever came to any of our basketball games. You may not have been around when I was in high school uh, to come and see him, but we had a guard. We had a guard. His name was Mike. We played a team that had not lost in two years, undefeated. They come to our gym. We take the game into triple overtime. We have an opportunity to win this ball game. Our coach calls a timeout. We come over on the sideline. One of our players had had the hot hand all night. He said, all right, here's what we're going to do. We're going to work this play. We're going to inbound the ball. We're going to bring this one player off of a pick. We're going to feed him the ball. He's going to turn around take a jump shot. And we have the whole thing planned. The ball is inbounded and Mike, our point guard, is dribbling around out front. By the way, any of you ever seen the Harlem Globetrotters? Anybody know what I'm talking about? He'd just been to see the Harlem Globetrotters play a couple of days earlier. So you know what he's doing? The the fans are counting it down. Ten, nine, eight, seven. He's out front, you know, between his legs, you know, dribbling around like this. Six, five. The guy that's supposed to get the ball to shoot is wide open. He's going to pass it. You know what Mike does? He dribbles out the clock. Three, two, one. The coach calls us over to the sideline. Mike, what were you thinking? He said, Coach, that was awesome, wasn't it? He said, Son, we lost. We lost. You know why he was doing that? Showing off. That's what Samson's doing. Do you know people that are controlled by what other people think about them? Show off. Now, I'm not trying to be unkind about my neighbor. But we have a neighbor that lives across the street from us. His name is also Mike. He is 64 years old. Nine years older than I am. Do you know what he will do tonight? In fact, if I were home, 
I would watch him do this. Now, I love Mike. He's my friend. But here's what he will do tonight. He has a red Corvette. How many of you know what a Corvette is? American sports car. You know, Chevrolet makes it. Beautiful car. He has a red Corvette. You know what he did yesterday? I, I, I promise you, he did this yesterday. He, he waxed his Corvette. Tonight, what he will do with his Corvette is this. He will back it out of the, the, the garage into the driveway. He will go inside. He will get himself dressed to go out on his date. He has a girlfriend. He'll come out of his house. No kidding. Now, I love Mike. He's my friend. But he comes out with a pair of jeans on so tight, he's had to grease his legs with motor oil to get them on. He has a shirt on. No kidding. I've seen him do this. A shirt on that's open all the way down to his navel, exposing both hairs on his chest. He has a big gold chain hanging around his neck. He gets in his Corvette, puts the key in, starts it up, and does this. And then he'll back it down into the road, put it in first gear, spin 4,000 miles worth of rubber off the back tires as he heads into town for his date. You know, every time he does that, if I'm home, you know what I do to my wife? I go, hey, hey, I'm impressed. That's awesome. <laughs> Shelly, you know what Betsy does? You know her. She goes, stop it. <laughs> my point I'm making is this. A 64-year-old man ought to know better than that, right? <laughs> Dressing that way, spinning the tires. He's 64 years old. Who's he trying to impress? My point is this, that's Samson, controlled by what other people think about him. Now, there's one last woman in his life. It's in chapter 16. I'm not going to read it to you for sake of time. Anybody remember this woman's name? Her name was Delilah. By the way, Delilah, the name Delilah comes from a Hebrew term that means to whine. To whine. Do you remember what the Philistines do with Miss Delilah? They come to her and they say, Now your, your job is to figure out why your boyfriend is so strong. In fact, what we really want to know is, what will make him weak like all the other men? Make him on par with everybody else's strength. What will lessen his physical strength? Find out what will make him weak. So she comes to him, girls, and she goes, Samson, sugar pie, sweetie plum. Samson, you're so much stronger than all the other guys. What I'd love to know is, is there anything that will make you weak? And guys, you remember what he does? He kind of plays with her mind a little bit. He says, well, if you'll get seven green withs. You know what a green with was? It was a supple but very strong vine that would wrap itself around a tree. If you'll find seven of those, un unwrap them from a tree. They're very flexible but very strong. They used to put them actually on a bow and shoot arrows off of these, these, these green withs or these supple vines. They used them as a bowstring. Find seven of those and if you tie me up with those, that'll make me weak like any other man. Now that's not true. But see, Delilah doesn't know that. So she gets seven of those things. She ties him up. And fellas, here's what's so stunning. Samson lets her do this. Knowing, knowing that she's thinking this will make him weak, vulnerable. He lets her do it. When she gets him tied up, you know what she's got planned? She's got a whole 
band of Philistines prepared to come and seize him. And so when she, he's tied up, she said, look, Samson, here come the Philistines. And sure enough, here they do come. Remember what Samson does? Pop. He goes out, smites the Philistines, no problem. He comes back and Miss Weiner, <laughs> Samson, you didn't tell me the truth. Okay, don't cry, don't cry. It has nothing to do with those green vines. She says, I know that. What will make you weak? He says, new rope. Get some new rope that's never been used on anybody or anything. Tie me up with new rope. That'll make me weak. Well, that's not true either. But see, she doesn't know that. So she gets some new rope, ties him up. Samson lets her, knowing she's thinking this will make him weak. She's got it planned. Look, Samson, here the Philistines come again. Remember what he does to the new rope? Pop. Smites the Philistines, no problem. Comes back, and this time Samson is greeted by this. The faucet's running. <laughs> Samson. By the way, you have to read it in the Hebrew to get all this. But anyway, she's crying. <laughs> Samson, tell me what will make you weak. Well, it has nothing to do with those green widths. I know that. It has nothing to do with new rope. I know that. What will make you weak? Now watch. He says, if you'll take the seven locks of my hair, Seven locks. Literally dreadlocks. His hair is woven into dreadlocks. Well, why, why would that be? Remember he was a Nazarite. There were three parts to his Nazarite commitment. Number one, never touch a dead carcass. He's broken that. Number two, a Nazarite was never to eat or drink anything from off the vine. No wine, no grape juice, really no grapes. Evidently, he broke that at that marriage feast where they drank wine. There's one part to his Nazarite commitment he has not violated. A Nazarite was never to have their hair cut. It was a symbol, an external symbol in those days of their commitment to God. Samson's hair at this point is so long, he's got it braided into dreadlocks. So he tells Delilah, if you'll take the seven locks of my hair and weave them up here together and fasten them with a web, in other words, kind of give me a new hairdo, that'll make me weak. Now that's not true either. But it's closer to the truth. So she gives him a new hairdo and he lets her do it. You know what? She's got it all planned. Look, Samson, here come the Philistines again. Sure enough, here they come. You know what he does? New hairdo and all. He goes out, smites them, no problem. Comes back. She must have had the apartment door closed, locked. And he's knocking on the door. Delilah, let me in. No, I'm not going to let you in. You've been lying to me. No, come on, sweetie. I'm just kind of playing with your mind. No, you've not been telling me the truth. I'm not letting you in. Come on, let me in. You know what the Bible says? She wears him down. Is there one of these free? Here we go. She wears him down and finally he says to her something like this. If you'll let me in, I'll tell you what will make me weak. She unlocks the door, lets him in. She must have said this. Now Samson, sit right here on the love seat beside me. Now tell me. Look me right in the eyes and tell me what will make you weak. You know what he does? He tells her. I was dedicated as a Nazarite to God from the time before I was even born. One part of my Nazarite commitment I've not violated, it has to do with my hair. If you were to cut off my hair, Delilah, that would sever. That would sever my connection to the Lord and my power with God if my hair were to be taken. You know what the Bible says she does, and it's so tragic. The Bible says literally she made him sleep on her knees. It means this, she made him lean over, put his head in her lap. Now the Bible doesn't say this, 
But I can imagine her doing this, playing with his hair, singing, go to sleep, go to sleep, go to sleep, big, strong snap. Can you see his eyes getting heavy? I can. Yeah. When he's sound asleep, you know what she's got prepared? In walks a Philistine barber. Snip, 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 snip. And off comes his hair. Promise me you won't hit me for doing this. Okay? You know what the Bible says she does to him when his hair is gone? Chapter 16 of Judges, and I used to wonder what does this mean? The Bible says she began, after his hair is gone, to afflict him. Afflict is a Hebrew term that means to poke or to prod. Now he's asleep in her lap, okay? So she begins to go, Samson, Samson, the Philistines are coming again. And sure enough, they are. You know what the Bible says he does, brother? He stands up and the first thing the Scripture says he does is he shakes himself. The word shake is a Hebrew term that is used elsewhere in secular literature to describe a horse shaking its mane. Do you guys watch WWE wrestling over here in England? You know what WWE, do you know what WWE is? You know, the guys, you know, they slam people around. You ever watch those guys, you know, some of them will do this. They'll, you know, they'll body slam some guy and then they'll stand up and they'll, with their hair. Everybody, you know what I'm talking about? Samson, the Philistines are coming, she says. You know what he does? He stands up and he only there's nothing there. And you know what he does? He says something out loud. I will go out as at other times. And I'll smite the Philistines like I've always done. Only guys, this time he doesn't smite anybody. No, they take him, don't they? And they take something from him. Do you remember what they put out? They put out what? Eyes. I'm not trying to be graphic nor gross. But can I tell you how they would have done that? The Philistines were brutal people. They would have possibly, more likely though this, they would have laid him on his back. They would have put a burly Philistine hand here and another one here so he can't turn his head. And then they would have taken a piece of iron and held it in a roaring flame until it's almost glowing red hot. And then they would stand over him and they wouldn't gouge necessarily. They would burn out the eye socket. See, this is a highly vascular part of your body. If you get a head wound, you can bleed a lot. They don't want him bleeding a lot. They just want to damage his eyes. Do you understand the hot iron would certainly destroy his eyesight, but it would cauterize. It would seal off the blood vessel so he wouldn't bleed copiously so they would burn out the eyes of the victim and then they stand Samson up and they escort him over here to a gristmill and they chain him to a gristmill and they say now you grind that gristmill you push that thing like a donkey and here's the most powerful man on earth reduced to pushing a grinding wheel like an animal why the fear of literally brought Samson a snare, didn't it? Controlled what everybody thought. Now guys, I love you. I want you to know that. I'm looking into the eyes and into the faces of some of the most incredible 
young people I've ever looked into. Do you know I speak to kids in America and they don't listen like you guys always. They don't always listen like you listen. I'm just telling you, there is incredible, incredible potential in this room. God wants to use your life, but I want to tell you, you've got to get beyond what everybody thinks or what they might think. And you've got to be consumed by what God thinks. Really, who cares what anybody else thinks as long as God is pleased? Could I hear an amen right there? Amen. Brother Dave, why is this so important? With this, I'm done. We have a youth camp out in Washington State. Brother Curtis' son has been to that youth camp uh, years back with us. It's a great place. There was a youth director at that camp who came up to me and he was telling me his story. But I'll be honest with you, I was looking at this youth director, but, but I really wasn't paying attention to what he said. And I always try to pay attention to what everybody says. But a teenage boy, a 17-year-old teenage boy had come up before the youth director and said, Mr. Kister, he said, I've got a question for you. He said, I've been reading in my Bible about Samson. And you know, Delilah would ask him what will make you weak and Samson would kind of play with her mind a little bit. He said, my question, Mr. K, is this. Did, did, did Samson know that Delilah was trying to set him up to destroy him? I mean, did he really know that? I said, I'm sure he did. He wasn't stupid. He said, okay. This is one of the reasons I love young people. They think. He said, okay, if that's true, if he knew she was trying to destroy him, why did he continue to hang around her? I mean, if he really knew she was trying to destroy him, why did he stay with her? I said, man, that's a great question. By the way, I said, I've never even thought about that. And I said, I'm going to be honest. I don't have an answer for you. Why would anybody continue to hang around someone if they knew the other person's trying to destroy them? Why would they do that? I said, let me think about it. Let me pray about it. Get back with you. Is that okay? He said, sure, fine. He left. Here comes the youth director. The youth director says, Mr. Kistler, I was 30-some years old when God called me in the ministry. I didn't get saved till I was, I think he said, 18, 19. He said, before I got saved in my 18th year, he said, we went out to a, a pub. He said, uh, Six, seven of us in the group. He said, we all got so drunk, we really didn't even know really where we were. We come out of the pub, we're going to get in the car. He said, the guy that was most drunk was the guy who owned the car. He was least qualified to drive. But he said, no, man, I'm driving. So he said, he gets behind the wheel. There's two other guys in the front seat, four of us in the back seat. He said, the guy was so drunk, he couldn't even get the key in the ignition. Finally, he does. Gets the car started. He said, he pulled the car down into the drive, scratches out of the parking lot. He said, man, there is a road we're on that literally does this. He said, that guy is so drunk, he, he can't keep the car in the road. Not, not just in his lane, he can't even keep it in the road. He's got the wheels off on this side, and he overcompensates the wheels are off on this side. And this guy said to me, the shoe director said, now I'm in the back seat, I'm by the, by the door on the right-hand side in the back seat. He said, I can see between the driver's shoulders and the guy in the middle, I can see the speedometer. He said, do you know that guy must have been pressing the accelerator because he said the car was doing about 60 miles an hour on this windy road. He said, Dave, I looked again and he said, he must have been pressing the accelerator more because he said the needle on the speedometer is over 80 miles an hour. He looked at me and he said this. He said, do you know what I did when I realized the car is doing 80 miles an hour? I said, no, sir, what would you do? By the way, I'm hanging on every word at this point. He said, I put my hand here beside me, between me and the door, and I put my other hand here and grabbed the seat, braced myself, and his words... He said, I got ready to die. I said, what? 
He said, yeah, I got ready to die. I said, what do you mean? He said, because I knew coming up. He said, now I'm drunk, but I know that road. Coming up after all of this is done, there is an abrupt left. It's called an S curve. It's a 90 degree to the left and then immediately 90 degrees to the right. He said, I knew at 80 miles an hour, we're not going to make it through that. We're going to go straight, go airborne, hit those trees. And he said, the car's going to be splintered into hundreds of pieces and I'm going to die. He said, I literally, literally closed my eyes, put my hands on either side of me and got ready to die. He said, I opened my eyes and looked one last time. He said, he must have buried the accelerator. He said, the needle's over 100 miles an hour. I said, hey, 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 stop, 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 stop. I want to ask you a question. I said, you thought you were going to die. He said, he said Mr. K, not thought. He said, I knew in seconds I would die. He said, now obviously I didn't because I'm standing here. He said, I'll tell you what happened that I didn't die in just a minute. But I said, my point is this, you, you, you were convinced you are going to die, right? Right. I said, okay, got a question. At 100 miles an hour, convinced in seconds you're going to die, did you say to the driver, hey, hey, put your foot on the brake. Stop the car. I'd like to get out. You know what that 35-year-old man did? He looked at me and said, what? I said, you were convinced you were going to die, right? He said, right. I said, okay, at 100 miles an hour, convinced in seconds you're going to die. Did you say to the driver, if you want to kill yourself tonight and the other guys in the car, fine, but, but I'm not dying tonight. Put your foot on the brake. Stop the car and let me out. Did you say that? He said, what are you talking about? I said, you were convinced you were going to die, right? He said, right. I said, okay, knowing in seconds you're going to die, did you tell the driver, stop the car, I'm not dying tonight. I will not die. Put your foot on the brake. Did you say that? He said, of course not. I said, why not? You thought you were going to die. You know what he said to me? He said, Mr. K, I couldn't have told him, stop and let me out, because if I'd have done that, the other six guys in the car would have finished the sentence for me, laughed at me. They would have laughed at me. I said, so what you're telling me is this. You were willing to die to have the approval of six other guys. You know what he did? He went... never thought about it like that. But that's what I was about to do, wasn't it? Be willing to die to have their approval. He looked at me and said, that wasn't very smart, was it? I said, no. I said, by the way, excuse me, i got to go answer a question. And I found that teenage boy and I said, i got an answer for you. You know why Samson hung around Delilah? Though he knew she was trying to set him up and kill him, had to have her approval. Wanted her affection so bad, he was willing to die to get it. And that's exactly what it cost him. Now guys, I love you. Hear me out, please. I know, I'm not putting anybody down, but the chances are very high that there's some guys and girls in this room, some young men, young ladies that don't know the Lord. You're not saved. You're sitting in a chair. You're listening. And in just a second, I'm going to do something. I'm going to ask if you don't know the Lord, if you've never been saved, I'm going to ask would you be willing to let someone take a Bible and show you how to trust Christ. I know what some of you are going to do. I see it all the time. 
I've seen people literally do this. Hold on to the seat in front of them till their knuckles turn white. Oh, I couldn't get up. I couldn't get up and let somebody take a Bible and show me how to be saved. I couldn't do that. Because if I did that, what would everybody else in the room think about me? Can I say this? It's your eternal soul we're talking about. Really, who cares what anybody else thinks? Could I hear an amen there? When it comes to deciding to live for the Lord, who cares what anybody else thinks? All that really matters is what God thinks. Samson ended up where he ended up because he was consumed by the peer pressure. Father, would you help us this morning to learn a valuable lesson from the book of Judges. And Lord, you've put the entire life of this man Samson in this book and we can walk through his life, observe the choices he made, good and bad. And Lord, it's there for a reason so that we don't repeat the mistakes Samson made. So Father, I pray for these incredible young men and these incredible young ladies. That Lord, first and foremost, if there's any of them in the room that do not know for sure that Jesus, you're their Savior, they don't know that they're going to heaven when they leave this life. Oh God, please, may they not be consumed by what somebody might think or say. May they be concerned only about their own eternal future. And may they make a decision for themselves that's good and that's right. And I pray they'd come to you, Lord Jesus, and be saved, Lord, before it is eternally too late. And then, Lord, help those that do know you to just pitch what everybody else thinks and long to live for your approval alone. Your approval alone. And, Father, for what you do, we'll give you the praise, glory, and thanksgiving. Now, guys, with our heads bowed and our eyes closed, I want to ask you just a couple of very direct questions. Question number one. Please don't worry what someone else does or doesn't do. Please answer this honestly, transparently for yourself. Has there been a time in your life when you understood, hey, I'm a sinner. I'm on my way to an eternity separated from God forever in a literal place. The Bible calls that place hell. I know that's not politically correct anymore to talk about, but it's biblically correct. But see, Jesus loved you. God's Son, Jesus Christ, loved you enough to die on an old rugged cross. I'm so thankful when I was a very young man that I understood Jesus loved me, a sinner. And I deliberately asked Him on purpose, asked Him to come into my heart and life and save me, and He did. I asked Him to forgive my sin, and He did. And He changed my life. And He's given me a peace and joy that the world can never give. And I have the assurance that when I leave this life, I'm going to heaven. What I'm asking is, do you have that assurance? Do you know that you've been saved? Do you know that when you die, you're going to heaven? Do you know that? If you can say, yes, Mr. Kistler, I know. I know, Brother Dave, when I die, I know I'm going to heaven. I don't have a doubt about it. If you know for sure you've been saved and you're going to heaven, would you simply do this? Would you just lift your hand and hold it as high as you can? If you know for sure you're going to heaven. Now don't do something because someone else does. Just be honest. Be transparent. Thank you. You may put your hand down. Bless your heart. Now I want to ask a second question. 
Are there some in the room today that would be willing to say, you know what, Mr. Kistler, I don't know. Dave, I don't know. I do not know that when I die, I'm going to heaven. I don't know that. But I'd sure like to know. I'm concerned about where I'm going to spend eternity, the life after this life, and there is one. I'm concerned about where I'm going to spend eternity. And Dave, I'd like you to pray for me. Friend, I'd love to pray for you, not by name, of course. Even if I know your name, I wouldn't call it out and embarrass you. But I sure would like to pray for you that you'll be saved before it's too late. Is there anyone in the room that would say, Dave, you're talking to me. I couldn't raise my hand to the first question. I don't yet know that I'm going to heaven, but I am concerned about where I'm going to spend eternity. And I'd like you to pray for me. If that's you and you'd let me pray for you, would you lift your hand now just long enough for me to see it anywhere in the room? Dave, I don't know that I'm going to heaven yet. But I sure don't want to let peer pressure, fear of what somebody else might think, be the reason I don't come to Jesus and trust Him as Savior. No, I'm going to heaven. Friend, please don't let that happen. All right, one final question. Just so that I can know how to pray for all of you, over the next hours and day and a half. If God has spoken to your heart as a Christian young person and you understand, hey, this thing called peer pressure, fear of man, man, it's real and it is. But God has spoken to you and you want God to give you victory over the fear of man. What somebody thinks about me. Brother Dave, I want to live in victory over that. If God's spoken to you about it and you do want to have victory in this area, would you just let me know that by lifting your hand and holding it up? Just all over the room. Man, God's spoken to me about it and I want to live in victory with this. I don't want to be consumed by what everybody thinks about me. I want to be concerned by what God thinks. God bless you guys. Father, I pray you would help these young men and young ladies. Oh God, so much potential here. Father, I pray none of it would be wasted. Lord, none of it would be captured by the wicked one as he would seek to cause all of us to live a life controlled by what other people think rather than what you think. Father, help them, I pray, like I pray for myself, Lord, help them to live in victory over this. Help them to understand there is a way to live in victory. And Father, we'll thank you for what you do. Now continue to speak to us over the course of this day and tomorrow, Lord. And Father, I pray you would change our lives. And may we leave this place radically committed to you. And we'll thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.